I do think we're at the point where we need to think about the dangers of incredibly accurate facial recognition technology and what that means for society now. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Have you ever thought about what it means to be anonymous? Not anonymous like using a pen name or an alt Twitter account. Anonymous like you can walk down the street or go to the grocery store or out to dinner with someone you've never met knowing your name, everything you've posted online, or your political leanings. Or when you go on a first date with someone, they'd walk in knowing your dating history, your political affiliations, your credit score, or what groceries you buy. Or going to a concert or sporting event without being tracked, or even refused entry at the door of the venue because of where you work. With the rise of facial recognition technology and the inevitability that more and more people will have it available at their fingertips, it feels like we may be living in the twilight of anonymity. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Kashmir Hill. Kashmir is a tech reporter at the New York Times and the author of Your Face Belongs to Us, a secretive startup's quest to end privacy as we know it. Before joining the Times, she wrote for Gizmodo Media Group, Fusion, Forbes Magazine, and Above the Law. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker and The Washington Post, but maybe most importantly for today's conversation, she's also the trendsetter of Flip Phone February. Kashmir, welcome to Politicology. Hi, Ron. It's great to be here. My flip phone by my side. <laughs> it's really taking <laughs> off. I've been following your work since you broke the Clearview story think it was back in February of 2020, but it's one of those uh, stories for me that um, it made such an impression on me that I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I when I listened to it in podcast form at that point before I read the long form piece. And I was just walking around Midtown Manhattan on a visit to New York, uh, listening to podcasts. And um, I've worked at the intersection of tech and politics for basically my entire career, and it stopped me in my tracks understanding, you know, what you would then go on to expand uh, on in that reporting, which is the implications of this technology everywhere, and it was just at the very beginning. So, um, so I'm thrilled to, to be here uh, and have this conversation with you. I guess one of the real takeaways from the book is, as I alluded to in the uh, intro is that we could be on the precipice of the end of anonymity. And I don't think we as a society really think about what it means to be anonymous in our everyday lives. Can you help us paint the picture broadly of what's at stake here? So just in our day-to-day lives, uh, I think we rely on anonymity a lot to go into a pharmacy and, you know, buy a sensitive medical product, um, to go to a clinic, go to a Planned Parenthood, and to be able to walk outside and not have the people there take a photo of you and know who you are. Um, there's also kind of it being wielded, as you were saying, an introduction by businesses, knowing who you are as you walk through the door, um, possibly turning you away, for example, if you are a lawyer who has uh, uh, works for a firm that sued Madison Square Garden and the owner of Madison Square Garden, James Dolan, is mad at you. So you can't go inside and see a Rangers game or a Knicks game or a Mariah Carey concert. And then there's the the power it gives the government to be able to identify, for example, protesters, voices of dissent, um, groups that it is worried about. It is ultimately facial recognition technology means that you can instantly gather a lot of information about people. And ultimately, it's just a very powerful method of control. 
One of the things you write about is the privacy paradox uh, that Alessandro Acquisti researched, um, where people say they care about their privacy, uh, but they don't understand how they can protect it necessarily. And you point out the analysis of Facebook profiles of Carnegie Mellon students, wherein more than 90% shared their profile photos publicly, but only 40% shared their phone numbers. So how do you think we should be thinking about what is sensitive or de-anonymizing information now, as opposed to 10 years or 20 years or 30 years ago? Yeah, I mean, part of the privacy paradox is that people say they care about their privacy, but they don't take the steps they need to to protect it. Uh, and so with facial recognition, to so what has been created is these technologies that can, um, they scrape the entire internet and you take a photo of somebody and it returns all the places on the internet where their face appears. So it is this easy way to figure out someone's name, find their social media profiles, um, find where they work, you know, find photos they may not know are on the internet, which I've, I've seen happen, and it's pretty wild. Um, so it means you have to be really careful about what you put on the internet featuring your face. And this is not just photos you yourself upload, but photos that you may appear in because you're in the background of someone else's photo. So it means all of a sudden, wow, you you have to kind of police uh where your face appears on the public internet if you don't want it to be findable, which is, a, that's a very tough challenge. Yeah. And also many of this, these photos, the, the data that you've shared that can now be used um, to identify you was shared before the technology to do so even existed. So um, in the book you write, how can you fully comprehend what will become possible as technology improves? Information that you give up freely now in ways that seems harmless uh, might come back to haunt you when computers get better at mining it. So um, how can people get better prepared uh, to protect their privacy? I mean, uh, I think right now what we have to be thinking about is just anything that we make available on the public internet. Um, so, for example, something else that's happening with AI is that people are starting to get calls from loved ones who are in trouble, a grandson, a daughter, who calls and says, I was just in an accident. Um, I was drunk. The police have arrested me. I need a lawyer. Please wire me money so I can hire a lawyer. And uh, it is a scam. The voice of their loved one is a deep fake that has been collected from a public Instagram, you know, video they made or YouTube video. And so it's one of these things where people weren't thinking, when I put my face out there, when I put my voice out there, someone was going to come along and collect it and use it in a way I didn't expect and, and may harm me and my loved ones. So I think right now, as we have generative AI companies, um, you know, these, these biometric companies coming along and scraping everything, you really have to ask yourself, do I want to put this information on the public internet, whether it's, you know, you, your voice, or your writing, because there are going to be companies that collect it now. Yeah. People are probably thinking of the most recent example uh, in which Joe Biden's voice was uh, deepfaked uh, in New Hampshire. Let's talk about the book. Um, maybe you should start with how you started working on this story. I thought that was um, uh, quite interesting. You've written about facial recognition in Clearview uh, at the Times. So when did you realize it could be a book? When did you realize there was a whole lot more here that you needed to do? 
Yeah. So I first found out about Clearview in uh, November of 2019. Uh, remember very clearly, as you remember hearing about it, I was in a hotel room in Switzerland. I was doing kind of a fellowship program there. I was very, I was pregnant. It was midnight. I was going to sleep uh, and uh, looked at my smartphone as we all do at the end of the day. And I had an email from um, a, a tipster, a public records researcher. And he said, I think that you might be interested in this. I was asking police about facial recognition companies they're using. And I came across this company that's selling our Facebook photos to the cops. And attached to his email was a 26-page PDF. It had come from the Atlanta Police Department. It was a brochure for Clearview AI describing itself as a Google for faces. And it was this legal memo uh, marked uh, uh, privileged and confidential, which as soon as I saw that, it was like, oh, juicy. <laughs> and it was written by Paul Clement, whose name I recognized. He was Solicitor General under George W. Bush, now in private practice, making a lot of money. And he'd written this, this um, memo for Clearview that described what they'd done, that they'd scraped billions of photos from the public internet, from social media sites like Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn, and built this very powerful tool. It said it was already being used by hundreds of police departments. And he'd written the memo to reassure officers who wanted to use it that they wouldn't be breaking state and federal privacy laws by doing so. And when I first heard about it, I just thought, what? Like, who is this company I've never heard of before? And how are they the ones offering this rather than a Google or a Facebook? And I, I called the tipster immediately and I said, I'm really interested. I'm back in the States this weekend and I will pick this up right away. Um, and so I started digging into Clearview AI. They were such a mysterious company, really had, had they exposed so much about us, but they were really trying to stay in the shadows, trying to keep hidden who was behind the company. Um, they kind of went to great lengths to try to discourage my reporting at first. And as I found out more about them and the people behind it and how they, yeah, just had developed this powerful technology, it just kept going deeper and deeper. And I kind of knew there was a book there. And I kept pitching stories to my editors at the New York Times. And they were like, you definitely need to write a book about <laughs> this. And and it was it was fascinating to work on. They were just uh, so many questions about how do we get here? Why do we not protect ourselves from something like this? Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyways, it was, it, it was very fun to work on. Well, one of the things I really appreciated about it is, uh, while I, um, certainly love books about technology and can, you know, get very wonky myself, this book is written for a layperson because you tell it in really colorful stories about very colorful personalities. And it's very easy to follow, even if you aren't well-versed in technology uh, itself. There's not a lot of jargon. And so it reads kind of like a novel in, in that way. So I appreciate that. And I want our listeners to know you shouldn't be intimidated if the idea of reading about maybe complex emerging technology is, you know, uh, intimidating to you. Um, don't be, because it's quite an easy read. Um, one of the ways in which the rabbit hole seemed to go deeper, and something I wasn't aware of, uh, even though we've been talking about Clearview, my producer and I, ever since that uh, that initial report that you did, was that I had no idea it was born out of a connection to its MAGA connection. So maybe you can share a bit about that. Yeah, 2016. 
the kind of main person behind Clearview AI uh, turned out to be this guy, Juan Tontat. He's a young guy, was one of those, you know, kind of classic tech founders, always loved computers from a young age, like three or four years old. He grew up in Australia. He moved to San Francisco um, when he was 19 years old, dropped out of college, was chasing the tech boom, made Facebook quizzes, iPhone games. Um, and then he moved to New York and kind of fell in with a right-leaning crowd. Uh, started hanging out with a guy named Charles Johnson. Um, who's kind of well-known for, for making these uh, political news sites kind of chased um, a, a bit of race baiting that happened on them. You know, did, you know, was Michael Brown actually violent? Should he, uh, had he been a threat to the police? That kind of mining, those types of stories. Uh, hanging out with a MAGA crowd, I mean, which was unusual because he's in Brooklyn, uh, you know, going to parties and he's wearing a red MAGA hat and a big white fur coat. Uh, and so he and Charles Johnson decided to go to the Republican National Convention because they were big Trump supporters. And it was there, they're kind of wandering around and you're surrounded by, you know, thousands of people. And they started talking about, wouldn't it be nice if we had a, a smartphone app that you could just kind of point at a stranger and know more about them? Kind of know if they're a friend or a foe, somebody you should get to know or somebody you should avoid. While they were at the Republican National Convention, uh, they met up with Peter Thiel, who was there to give a speech in support of Trump, who he was funding. And that was the first time Juan Tat met Peter Thiel. And later on, when he started developing what became Clearview AI, he reached back out to Peter Thiel and asked for funding. And Peter Thiel became their first, their first funder. It's, uh, kind of why. Clearview AI exists today. It's bizarre. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of our listeners will be quite interested for that reason alone. Um, early on in the book, you write about how Clearview was trying to create a tool to help make decisions about strangers. In this section uh, about studies into gaydar uh, and determining BMI based on uh, facial photos or predicting criminal faces highlights um, one side of the facial recognition coin. and. There's this dystopian side where, you know, I can identify you by your name, um, pull up your history based on your photo. But then there's also the side where people and companies want to stereotype based on facial features. Um, can you talk a bit about the role that genetic determinism has played in the development of facial recognition and where the science breaks off from the pseudoscience or vice versa? Yeah, this is one of the the strains that I found so interesting, uh, particularly as a technology reporter, because it was a little bit off the beaten path, but just the face, you know, how do human beings recognize the face? How is it that babies can kind of recognize their mother's face within basically hours of being born, according to some studies? And I was looking at kind of studies of the face, going back to Aristotle, who believed that you could kind of tell a person's character from the shape of their eyebrows or, you know, the the, the shape of their eye or the cut of their jaw. And um, there really is this, this strain of physiognomy or phrenology uh, that kind of goes through history and into modern times where technologists believe uh, some technologists are, are at least looking for evidence that what Victorian age kind of scientists and thinkers um, believed is true, that you can tell from someone's face maybe if they might become a criminal or if they might be a cheater or how intelligent they are. Um, I, you know, it, it beliefs that most people feel are steeped in racism and are pseudoscience. But now these technologists are saying, well, 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 
maybe there is something there. And so there have been studies uh, in China and in the U.S. where they have looked at criminal mugshots and kind of fed a computer a bunch of criminal mugshots to see if they can see something in those faces that is criminal in nature. And then they'll, uh, you know, try to try to see, give them, give them a criminal mugshot, give them a, a Facebook photo and have the computer say whether that person is likely to be a criminal or not. And sometimes these, these studies have been successful. The computer gets really good at, at, at predicting who's a criminal. But what the computer learned is which photos were most likely to be a mugshot <laughs> and which were most likely to have been posted to a social media site. They weren't learning criminal faces. They were learning about the nature of photos. And so when I first started, um, I, I didn't know this when I first started looking into Clearview. I, but as I worked on the book and I started talking to people connected to the company, I got early emails. They had similar beliefs. They weren't, they weren't just trying to look at a face and figure out who it belonged to. They were trying to figure out, well, can we suggest whether this person would be a good person to hire um, or, or how intelligent they might be or whether or not they might be a criminal. And so they did talk about, at one point, um, they talked about the Ashley Madison breach. You remember this, yep. the, the extramarital dating site. Yeah. Uh, some, some, um, some hackers broke into it. Uh, they said for kind of moralistic reasons that they didn't approve of what the people there were doing. And they exposed all the users of the site. It was, you know, tens of millions of people. Huge scandal. And it was a huge scandal. It was was like one of the most kind of intimate data breaches there have been. Uh, uh, Exposed a lot of users that that were surprising. And Juan Tantat said, oh my gosh, let's take all these these names and email addresses we have of the Ashley Madison users and search for these people on Facebook, find their faces, and then we'll know what a cheating face looks like. Uh, and I just thought that was, it was wild. It was, it, you know, Juan Tat has said since then that he doesn't have those same beliefs and the company went in a different direction, uh, which was easier for a computer to do, which was just figure out, does this face belong to Ron? Does this face belong to Kashmir? Um, which is a, a simpler uh, challenge for a computer. Not that simple. I mean, it's taken decades to get there, but now computers are so good at face recognition that they really are better than human beings at it. I don't know how many people are familiar with the attempts to develop facial recognition going all the way back to the 1950s. Um, but one of the things I found really helpful in understanding the trajectory, sort of how do we got to where we are, was the relationship between the CIA and Panoramic. Um, this was the summer of 1956. Maybe you can tell a little bit about that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, essentially, people in Silicon Valley were trying to develop automated facial recognition before the area was even called Silicon Valley. Uh, and there was a, a kind of a technological think tank there uh, was getting secretly funding from the CIA to to try to work on this problem. Can you get a machine to recognize uh, a human face? And I think the government was already aware of how useful this could be, you know, uh, at borders, um, uh, you know, uh, recognizing criminals. This is long strain. How do you, once you know somebody's a criminal, how do you recognize them again if you arrest them again? And so they did this yeah, experiment in the, the 1950s, early 1960s of trying to get the machine to kind of measure the face. But this is, this is so early days. The computers were huge. They were very simple. It didn't 
work that well, but that's when we had the first research paper that said, you know, maybe one day this could be possible. And they said they'd had some success getting a computer to kind of like recognize one face out of eight. It was all white men. Uh, one of the primary researchers had to have his teen son come and uh, with a friend and kind of like do the measurements for the computer. And they're basically uploading the measurements of the face to the computer. But yeah, this goes, it goes so far back. Um, and it really developed in fits and starts for so long. Uh, and most people thought computers would never be able to do this. It seemed like too hard a technical challenge to recognize the human face in different lighting, different angles, you know, hat on, mustache. But yeah. yeah. It took but, a while. <laughs> so e- e- even then, the government knew just how powerful this would be, and that probably was why they were so interested in it. And you asked these questions about how different the 60s um, could have been if these pushes uh, you know, in the 50s had had better results. So how do you think um, the ability to be anonymous helped with the civil rights movement of the 60s and then maybe the broader cultural, revolution, cultural revolutions of the 70s? Well, there was this, this, the, there's a famous um, Supreme Court case um, where the NAACP in, I think, I think it was in, I want to say it was in Alabama. It was a Southern state that decided the NAACP was an illegal organization, um, you know, basically a terrorist you know, organization. Tried, and they said, you know, we're disbanding it. And they wanted to know who all the members were. And so um, the government had said, the state had subpoenaed the names of all the members. And the group said, no, we're not going to give it to you. And it was this, you know, legal battle that went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ultimately said, no, you can't, requ- you can't request the names of all the members. Like, that's chilling. That's a violation of uh, their constitutional rights. But I was thinking, wow, you know, if, if, if panoramic research had developed facial recognition um, earlier uh, during that time, the state wouldn't have had to subpoena those names. They could just take a picture of people that gathered for protest or people as they were entering the office and then just look them up and know their names. Um, and so it just, just shows the, the, the power of, of knowing who the dissidents are and the inability for people to kind of gather as a group, gather with some um, anonymity to, to challenge the state. Um, yeah, that was, that was really chilling to me to, to think about that if, if, if facial recognition had been successfully deployed earlier, would it have frozen the status quo, made it hard to challenge, you know, uh, uh, practices that were legal, but unethical or immoral? I want to pick back up on that thread uh, toward the end before we close, because I think that's probably the most important uh, question before us today. Um, but first, let's talk about Facebook. I'm not sure how many people have thought about how we've crowdsourced some of the work required to train facial recognition algorithms um, for free <laughs> on Facebook by tagging our friends in photos. Can you explain the role Facebook uh, specifically played in developing facial recognition technology? Yeah. So for so long, the the scientists and engineers that work on facial recognition technology, what they needed was faces, and they would Basically, they'd hire people to come and sit for a photo session. They would have what at the time felt like huge databases. They had like a uh, 100 people's faces or 200 people's faces. And, you know, they'd be working. The way this often works with computers is you're kind of like 
feeding the computer faces and 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 with enough data, it starts to figure out, okay, oh, this face belongs to this person. Um, but yeah, it was it was moving pretty slowly. And then Facebook comes along. And, you know, other technology companies, but Facebook was a big one where we all started uploading, you know, thousands of photos and then together, you know, billions of photos. And we would tag ourselves in the picture. And so it would be like, oh, here's me, you know, at a, at a wedding party. Here's me on the beach. Here's me in a dark bar. Here's me turned away from the camera. And we would tag ourselves thousands of times. And so the, the engineers at Facebook ended up developing one of the first really powerful facial recognition algorithms. They called it Deep Face. And they had been able to do this because they had thousands of thousands of photos of lots of Facebook users where we had created what is called training data that was, you know, so much more useful and powerful than anything had come before. And it really, basically the internet kind of supercharged facial recognition because now we have so many photos of people and it allowed computers to, to kind of learn how to see a human face, how to interpret a human face in lots of different conditions. Yeah. You uh, quote Julian Assange of WikiLeaks calling Facebook the most appalling spying machine that has ever been invented. Um, And that raised a couple of questions for me about figures like uh, Assange and Edward Snowden, who you also mentioned in the book. Um, And I wonder how you think we should be... um, viewing a figure like Assange weighing in here or or Edward Snowden um for example because these are these are very controversial figures um i remember when i saw the documentary i think it was called citizen 4 about edward snowden um which was i thought a magnificent piece of filmmaking and um i you know i understand people's objections to him but i still can't help but feel very sympathetic toward um what he was trying to do in the first place. And certainly we, um, as a government, right, the United States passed some reforms in the aftermath of, of the, of the information he revealed about, um, about the NSA's surveillance operation. So how do you think about those figures now? Um, you're obviously you're a tech reporter, but specifically about, um, you know, the, the evolution of facial recognition technology and about what Facebook did. Um, are these, uh, figures worth re-looking, re-examining, reconsidering, um, you know, uh, the, the scandals that surround them? Well, I, I mean, I think the big question is the role of state power um, and how much secrecy, you know, the state is entitled to, how much secrecy we as individuals and citizens are entitled to. Um, and, yeah, I mean, uh, just data collection. Like, do we trust, you know, governments with this much power? And, you know, with Edward Snowden, it was the power to see who we're calling, you know, see who we're emailing. Um, Julian Assange, it was it was partly the the freedom of the press. You know, uh, how entitled are we to what the government wants to keep secret? Uh, I think as journalists. We tend to be challenging these things all the time. We're trying to reveal as much as possible because we want citizens to know what's going on, to be able to decide, is this the way that we want democracy to go? Um, And it really, 
it, it's, it really, I mean, to trust a technology, you have to trust the person wielding it. And so with facial recognition technology, you know, maybe we are comfortable with police having this power, uh, that there's a surveillance video of a crime and there's an image, a very clear image. The, the image does need to be a nice image, a nice uh, kind of high quality image. There's a quality of the, per, um, there's an image of the person who did it. Maybe we want police to be able to run that through a, a database like Clearview AI, find out who that is. But then we we look at how this is playing out in in other places that are a little further ahead with facial recognition technology, like Russia, like China. In Moscow, there are facial recognition algorithms running on surveillance cameras. And when protesters gather to uh, to voice their opposition to the invasion of Ukraine, they have police show up at their doors the next day to give them tickets for unlawful assembly. Um, in China, you know, you jaywalk in, in some places and you automatically get a ticket. Uh, the protesters in Hong Kong who were kind of opposed to mainland China taking over, they were, they were literally scaling the poles and trying to paint over the facial recognition cameras because uh, there was there was so there were consequences to saying we don't want this as citizens. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's. I, I do think it's worth examining this in, in terms of: is this what we want uh, as a citizenry? Like, uh, do we want facial recognition to be very widespread, ubiquitous, applied all the time on all the facial rec- on all the surveillance cameras, or? Do we want more restrictions? And either way, we need to know what's happening. And that was 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 kind of shocking to me when I first heard about Clearview AI. Is you know it was being used not just by hundreds of police departments, but thousands, and no one knew about it. Like we didn't get a chance to talk about it and say, do we want this? Do we not want this? Um, Clearview AI had at the time a database of three billion photos gathered from the internet. Their database is now forty billion photos, and it was all just kind of happening. Uh, you know, in in the dark for most of us. Yeah, yeah. You even mentioned someone I can't remember who it was, but at a Senate hearing, giving testimony, and uh, she was not even aware uh, that Clearview AI was already doing the thing that she was afraid was happening. I, I don't recall that specific vignette, but yeah, it was uh, it was uh, Dr. Joy Buonwini, um, who actually has her own book called Un- "Unmasking AI," because uh, she's written a lot about the bias in fa- in. Uh, uh, facial algorithms and the way that they were developed to kind of work best on white, white men, white people, yeah. and less well on other people. Uh, but yeah, she was talking about you know, the thing that you need to protect us against is some company going out and, and gathering all of our photos without our consent and developing this this big facial recognition yeah. engine. Meanwhile, yeah, it, it had happened and the police were already using it. That's worth touching on for just a moment because um, to the extent that we've talked about facial recognition on this show in the past, we've, uh, you know, maybe it was her, but certainly there were, there've been lots of headlines about the racial bias embedded in the, in the algorithms, which work better on white faces. Um, But you write in the book, and I thought this was really important, um, criticizing these technologies on, uh, over their, uh, you know, the racial bias baked into them is really leading with your chin because it's a temporary uh, technical problem and it and it's fixable and it will go away and eventually um, that won't be a problem. And what we really should be focusing on here, I think, uh, and, I, and I take away from your book, is like the deeper 
um, the deeper questions, more philosophical questions about our relationship with technology and who owns it and who owns it. Um, did you want to say any more about that? So we often think that computers are better than us, right, at, at, at seeing the world because they don't have our same uh, subjectivities about it. But we can we can train biases into computers, and this definitely happened with facial recognition technology. In the, the early days, it was being trained, um, at least kind of in the U.S. context, with photos of the people who are working on it, which are often white men, and their friends who are often also white. And so these algorithms worked really well on white faces and less well on other people's faces, and they were being actively used. And so that's a huge problem, especially because they're being actively used in kind of safety and security context. Um, so that that's deeply worrying. But uh, it has come under a lot of criticism in, in recent years. And the facial recognition vendors realize that they could address this by training their systems with more diverse faces. And so they've done that. And in testing, there's a, there's a federal lab, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, they have been testing for bias. And they found that the, the best algorithms show very little bias now, um, if, if any at all. And so I do think we're at the point where we need to think about the dangers of, of incredibly accurate facial recognition technology and what that means for society now. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at We do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.